0: It feels really good. I grew up on a conventional tillage, so there's always that point where you drive by a nicely clean black field that, oh, that looks kind of picturesque, you know. But mm-hmm. on my own fields, I, I don't like to see black soil. I, I do what I can. I can't control what happens after I'm not farming anymore, and hopefully that will educate the landlords. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the 295th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Dick Goldbergson is proud of the steps he's taken to steward the landscape on his little slice of paradise in west-central Minnesota. When his family bought 65 acres on the shores of Big Chippewa Lake in 1984, they built their house well away from the water to reduce the impacts of possible runoff and erosion. Much of the land is in trees, and there's a creek running through it, along with tiny pothole wetlands that can be swarming with waterfowl during migrations. The retired 83-year-old school administrator and banker loves seeing the wildlife and knowing that he's doing his part to keep the big Chippewa clean. After all, the lake is at the head of a watershed that feeds into the Chippewa River, which in turn is the biggest waterway flowing into the Minnesota River. There are some slopes here, But there's nothing being washed into the lake, he told me on a recent summer day when I visited his place. He added, I can say I don't think there's any erosion. We just trust John. He does a good job. The John he's referring to is John Letterman, a neighboring farmer who rents some of Dick's land, along with a patchwork quilt of other parcels in the neighborhood. John shares the stewardship ethic of the retiree and his other seven landlords, and reflects that ethic in the way he raises crops on their properties taking extra care to utilize soil healthy practices like minimum tillage, cover cropping, and diverse rotations. While these parcels make up a small part of his overall operation, John feels it's extra important to implement conservation practices on them. He farms 800 owned acres and rents an additional 350 from the eight landlords. The parcels are tucked away in amongst pothole wetlands, lakes, and stands of trees, making for a lot of smaller fields. He's got a couple parcels that are an acre and a half in size and one 15-acre rental farm that's broken up into four or five different fields. At a time when many crop producers prefer to farm fields hundreds of acres in size, John has carved out a niche dealing with the odd corners that are tucked in among lakes, wetlands, and woodlands. They may not lend themselves to the efficient use of big equipment, but this piecemeal farming has allowed him to do his part to take care of the landscape in his community, While experimenting with new practices and exposing landowners to the long term benefits of working lands conservation, John has taken a methodical approach to adopting soil health practices. He started farming in 1987 and has always raised corn, soybeans, and wheat. Back in the 1990s, he tried no till and a form of conservation tillage called ridge till, but had problems with reduced yields, among other things. However, John was always drawn to the idea of disturbing the soil less and building up his structure in a way that it cut erosion and runoff, and the fewer passes required in a minimally tilled field can produce big savings in terms of the fuel burned and time spent in the tractor seat. In 2011, John began utilizing a conservation tillage system called strip-till and added cover cropping into the mix. Within the first year of adopting these practices, he got what he calls a convincer that he was on the right path while taking an evening walk in one of his fields. During the height of the growing season, John gave me a tour of his fields where the benefits of cover cropping and minimum tillage were quite evident. He plants his cash crops straight into standing cover crops, a method called planting green. He's very pleased with how this technique builds soil, suppresses weeds, and reduces the number of equipment passes he takes over each field. After our field tour, John sat down to talk to me about the importance of communicating well with landowners when trying out new soil health practices. He started our conversation by describing what he saw that one faithful evening several years ago, and why it convinced him that he was on the right track. So, John, we were talking a little bit about, you have a pretty good history of experimenting with certain soil health practices, including no-till, cover crops. You kind of gave no-till a second try after uh, dropping it in the early years. But one of the things that you were talking about was when you started using cover crops uh, the past few years you had an experience where you realized, oh, maybe this, it was like, sometimes people are always looking for indicators of, is this really the right direction? I'm taking some chances. It's an extra hassle. It's extra work. But you were really struck at, this was like, oh, okay. It really uh, was a clear indicator that things are, this is maybe the right uh, system to put in this particular practice. Can you just describe a little bit the history of that field and what you you observed there?
0: Yes, it was one of the first, First or second year, I had tried strip-till, and so I had a wheat field that after harvest, after wheat harvest, I planted a cover crop on 30 acres, and the rest of the field, I did my conventional way where I chisel plowed it right after harvest, and then probably later in September, field cultivated. But on the 30 acres, I planted a cover crop, probably peas and radishes, I believe, but it was a really dry fall, so we didn't have There was some cover crop growth It wasn't a lot, you know, a few inches tall maybe. And then come probably in October, I strip-tilled that portion of the cover crop. And then the next year, I planted corn. And one evening after, well, we had had, the corn was two to four inches tall. And we had a heavy rain, like three inches in a short amount of time. And the next day or two, I went out and walked that field at dusk. And I was walking along in the field on the, the strip-till cover crop portion of it. I could see little flicking not- motions or some kind of motion down uh, there. And I wasn't sure, you know, I got bifocals sometimes when when you go through the range and the bifocals, things look off. But I started looking closer, and here was the earthworms had been coming out of their burrows. As I walked along, they were flicking back. In their, their burrow, and you can't believe how fast they can move, but they can. But I was walking along and see on the strip till cover crop there was no erosion from that heavy rain. But as I walked across the border to where I had done my conventional program, conventional tillage, all of a sudden there was no earthworms visible and there was quite a bit of erosion on that field. So and this was would have been the first time on that field that it had been in that kind of system. So, you know, we we're literally talking only six months since it had been cover cropped or even less, you know, when you figure growing time that it was just amazed to me that there could be that much difference in that short a time. So that's what kind of convinced me I was on the
1: right track. That really was a convincer for you, really, because you, you probably maybe were wondering, but that that really convinced you.
0: Especially on the cover crop, I, I was pretty sold on the strip till or pretty sure on a strip till, but it it really, as far as the cover crop, it kind of got me to at least keep experimenting and, and pushing it further. Well, that's really
1: interesting that you bring that up about the the earthworms and the middens. So you just took me out to one of your cornfields that you had uh, planted green. You had rye standing rye in it. You went in and planted green. And the corn's looking great, uh, shoulder high. And uh, here we are in second week of July, in a year that's been pretty delayed otherwise. But it looked great. And then also what I noticed was that rye was kind of the biological activity in the soil had kind of uh, eaten it up. It was there; it, it really uh, kind of got worked into the soil. But the other thing I noticed was you there was a little midden and you uncovered that, and we saw moisture. And so you, that really, to me, struck. It's like boy, we really got some. Especially when we've had some moisture issues—too little moisture or too much moisture—but that's really helping that cornfield there with having that both that cover, but also that biological activity and that activity of those worms.
0: Correct. You know, it was actually mid-May when it was planted. It was the tallest seal rye and the greenest, the thickest I've ever planted corn into, so I was a little nervous, but it uh, I was surprised at how fast that residue disappeared and how good, how strong the corn came on.
1: You've experimented a lot, and I know one thing, you rent from eight different landowners and some of those fields are as small as an acre, an acre and a half. You said in some ways that can be hard to go in, but with doing the no-till, since you're only doing one pass, that that's really has helped you because you're not spending as much time going back and forth to the fields doing all these different passes. And and also that it sounds like it's helped you. Maybe when you do want to experiment, you can experiment on a small field and see how it works.
0: Yeah. I mean, those small fields are inefficient. You're turning back it around on yourself, and you can limit your times in that field. That helps a lot, and it does. I like I like to keep my experiments small, so if I make any big mistakes, that it's in a small scale. So um, I have done some experimenting on those fields that have worked, and then I moved them on to my bigger, my bigger fields.
1: With your landlords, you are, and we just visited one of your landlords here, uh, just a, a couple miles from here, and he really went on about how much he appreciates what what you're doing, the cover cropping and the no-till, and you can tell he really cares about this little piece of paradise that he has, and he really really appreciates the fact that the part that he can't really manage, the farming part of it, that you're managed, stewarding that well and doing the soil health practices and that kind of thing. Um, it sounds like that's something that's really important to you, and I think you said something that was really key in that you want to keep those, those pieces of land, and you hope that people will rent them out to you because you're doing some of these soil health practices, but that even if you did not have that land, you feel like, well, at least I'm setting that soil health up for the future. So at least I'm doing my part of it.
0: I do what I can. I can't control what happens after I'm not farming anymore. So, and hopefully that will educate the landlords. And uh, I usually get more questions from people that live in town or non-farming neighbors about my practices. And I do farmers a lot of times. So hopefully I'm just educating other people about these practices.
1: Well, that makes a good point. You you had some advice for somebody who might be a farmer who's who's looking to rent land and maybe wants to use some of these practices. You had some good advice, I think, for how to maybe talk to landowners about how to you know get them to see that the value of putting up with some of these practices.
0: Well, first of all, I think you need to educate your landlord and or find out where they how they feel about it first. But, you know, send them the LSP, their newsletter, or, or any other article or just a YouTube video that can help, them ex- help explain the benefits of some of these practices. And, you know, then once you find out what they're willing to do, you can try just a practice on their small piece. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if the landlord is a little hesitant, don't experiment on their ground. Find someplace else mm-hmm. to do it. Until you're more comfortable, or and then at that point, if it works out, you can maybe take them to visit some of your experiments that are that are working, and say, "I'd like to try this on your land." Uh-huh. Don't push it on them; make them comfortable. And if they're on board, and if they're if the landlord is actually pushing it, great, you know. But still, just keep your experiments small, because not only you have to worry about what how it affects your operation if you have a disaster on their land, they may not view that in a positive way, even though they may have been on board before. If they live by the field, they may be driving by it more often than you do.
1: That's a good point. I was was struck by that. Dick is right. He's got his garden and his house right there. And your bean field is right there on, well, on both sides of the driveway. So he's seen that every day. So have you used many like NRCS programs or anything to adopt some of these practices?
0: Yes, I was on CSP for, uh, would have been 10 years. I think I went through two cycles. So now I'm done. And I've done a little bit of equip but not a lot as far as cover crops. But mostly CSP has been my main and I currently I'm not mm-hmm. receiving any uh, any help on it. Was
1: was the CSP program helpful for you or
0: Yes, it was. it was it. It probably gave me those dollars to say, well, okay, this this is a little extra money, you know, I'm doing a few practices to get that benefit, but in the same point that was a little extra money that I could experiment with some of the cover crops and other, and the no-till.
1: Because it is a cost.
0: It's a cost, but I think it, it pays for itself in the long run. Yeah. Even though I don't graze my covers right now, I, I still believe long-term benefit is there. Yeah. Or even relatively short-term, within two to three years, I think, if it's there, if you can manage it correctly.
1: When you're driving around and you, you get the cover crops in, I know every year it's not doesn't work maybe as well as you'd like. The, the, weather is is the king and it can really rule how you put that system in get that in but when you are able to get it in and you're able to drive around in the fall both past your rented acres and your own acres how does that make you feel to kind of see see that both in
0: no-till and in in cover crops? It feels really good you know there's part of I grew up on a conventional tillage so there's always that point where you drive by a nicely clean black field that Oh, well, that looks kind of picturesque, you know, but mm-hmm. on my own fields, I, I don't like to see black soil. I, it is, I just, if I have to work a little bit area, I cringe in doing that. So.
1: For more on ways to create lease agreements that support good land stewardship, see the link to LSP's Conservation Leases Toolkit on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground, episode number 295, at landstewardshipproject.org. There, you'll also find a link to a Land Stewardship Letter article on how John Letterman is basing his rental agreements on conservation and healthy soil. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@LandStewardshipProject.org, at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.